1: of the Roden Fellows, hand-picked students from six historically black colleges and universities. They're young, they're smart, and they are living one of the most unique experiences in American higher education. I'm Bill Roden, and here are this week's Roden Fellows.
2: I'm Mania Shabazz from Grambling State University in Grambling, Louisiana.
1: And I'm
3: Isaiah Smalls from Royals College in Atlanta, Georgia.
1: Hello, everybody. I'm coming to you from Las Vegas, Nevada. Black athletes continue to lead the collision of sports, racism, and politics. Last week, the president tweeted that Oakland Raiders running back Marshawn Lynch should be suspended for kneeling during the national anthem, speaking of which the person who started this whole protest, Colin Kaepernick, continues to be unemployed. So many sports stories revolve around the lives of black athletes, and yet so few sports journalists are african American just over 10%. In studio today, we have Andrew Mambo and Taylor Barfield from ESPN's 30 for 30 podcast, which just launched a new season at 30for30podcast.com. Andrew is producer and reporter for the series, and Taylor is a production assistant. Welcome to the show, everybody. Thank
0: you. Thanks for having us.
1: Yeah. So season two, launched last week to critical acclaim with an episode called hoodies up could could you guys uh, tell us about hoodies up and 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 what should we expect from uh season two andrew
0: yeah so hoodies up has been something that the team has been working on for a while now but uh, in the production schedule, you know, trying to get LeBron James, Dwayne Wade to talk to you during the season is next to impossible. So yeah. it ended up you right. know, kind of moving and, and um, coming into the start off our second season. But it's the story around when Trayvon Martin was killed, and in the aftermath of that, you know, one of the things that people were doing were wearing hoodies and taking photos of themselves wearing hoodies, kind of like we stand with Trayvon. And right. in sports... You know, one of the first kind of, like, large groups to make a stand was the Miami Heat. About a month after it had happened, they took a photo and posted it to Twitter. And on Mm. LeBron James posted on his own Twitter feed. And it kind of just went viral, you know, and it kind Mm. of really brought, you know, a kind of consciousness of what had happened to Trayvon and, you know, it brought a sense of awareness to a lot of people that maybe didn't even know about it at that point. And it just kind of showed that here are these athletes and they stand with Trayvon. And, you know, it was just like this showing of support that was interesting to see from you know, some athletes of that kind of caliber. So the story kind of looks at that and how that happened, what their decision-making process was for LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, you know, the rest of the players. You talked to Adonis Haslam, talked to Joel Anthony.
1: The next episode uh, is going to be one that, uh, that you produced, Andrew, about mm-hmm. the birth of UFC. Mm-hmm. I want to play a clip. This clip describes the discussion between uh, the fighter and the organizers about what the rules should be in um, UFC. Let's listen.
0: Okay, we're going to
1: talk about the rules. And I says, and I raised my hand and says, I got a t-shirt that you gave me that says there are no rules. So why are we talking about rules? I said, you can go ahead and do anything you want. Headbutts, elbow hits, anything you want to do, you can do. The only two restrictions we had, no biting and no eye gouging.
4: Everybody agrees on those. Oh, and one more thing. Fighters cannot tape their knuckles.
1: It had to be bare knuckle fight. You could put a tape on your wrist, but you couldn't tape the knuckles
0: because that made the, the hand more of an armored weapon. So, Andrew, how did you uh, how did you learn about this story? Are you- yeah, I mean, this is one of the one of the stories. You know, we get a lot of pitches and things. You know, get thrown around. We have meetings where we kind of discuss a lot of different stories, and this is one when. And I just said, "Huh, I, I remember it." You know, I, I remember kind of the the beginning those first UFCs and I, I remember how different they were compared to what UFC is now so you know I rose my hand I was like I'm going to I'm willing to dig into that one and kind of see what you know is in that story and what's there
1: so I, I'm here in Las Vegas. Uh, what, what impact did the McGregor-Mayweather fight have uh, on, on UFC?
0: Funny story. I was actually reporting this story out when the McGregor-Mayweather fight happened, and the reporter on the story, Chris Berube, and I had traveled out to Phoenix to interview one of the fighters from the original one named uh, Zane Frazier, and we watched yeah. the fight with him. And it was interesting because he was kind of at an event where he was marketing his brand of teaching you know his style of of fighting his style of mixed martial arts and he was trying to like you know promote his style off of this fight and he was really talking up mcgregor is this mcgregor is going to do this and he really thinks that mcgregor is going to surprise everybody and i think within the first 20 to 30 seconds of the of the first round he just looks he's watching the fight and he goes Oh, well, McGregor has his hands down. He's like, this isn't going to last. This isn't going to work. <laughs> but, but I think it, overall, it was just a great, like, from a publicity standpoint for the UFC, it was fantastic. Right. The expectations for McGregor weren't there that he was going to win. You know, he was the underdog. So lose, he, you know, shows that somebody from UFC is tough. He could last a certain number of rounds. And if he won, then, you know, it would have even been better. But, I mean, it, they definitely showed that he could stand in there with somebody, even on Mayweather's terms.
1: Uh, Taylor, just don't want to lose you. Are you into USC at all?
4: <laughs> uh, I've paid. I've paid attention to it, <laughs> no, like true. here and there, but I'm not as into it as Andrew. That's for sure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey, hey! Listen, uh, you you had mentioned Zane Fraser. Um, ESPN reported that there are quite a few black fighters, but none have really become household names. Uh, Fraser, who is was Stevie Wonder's bodyguard, is the only brother that I know of. Uh, it, it, well, he's the only brother in the story, mm-hmm. and he had to stop the fight because of asthma. I know a couple of friars have complained about that, but they're, they're, they're there, they're present, but they're not being pushed. Mm. they promoted.
0: It's funny, I was having a conversation with your producer, Aaron, just about the other story I worked out about boxing and how, you know, mm-hmm. when when boxing had this problem, you know, Bob Lee, who was the New Jersey Deputy Boxing Commissioner, started up the IBF because he was feeling a lot of the you know a lot of the sanctioning bodies in boxing weren't giving a fair shake to African American fighters. And so his way of you know kind of fixing that was to start up a whole new sanctioning body that would like really have an eye towards promoting African American fighters. And, and I think like in UFC there are a lot of African American fighters and I agree with you that like the ones who are getting pushed and promoted the most tend to be the white like Conor somebody like a Conor McGregor but somebody like Conor McGregor also has the you know credentials to back it up in terms of his record and whatnot. But I don't know in in truth what you know kind of what could be done about it or or mm-hmm. what is being done about it.
1: You, you also mentioned James Scott, uh, mm-hmm. really a, a sensational piece you did. Uh, you, you produced and hosted uh, an episode last season called mm-hmm. "The Fighter Inside" about James Scott, who rose in the boxing ranks while he was in prison. Let's play a clip. I, I stopped
3: in there one day. I was from, from parole and I says hey I got a former boxer that guy's looking for any work you know and he said nah we're not going to pay nobody you know we, we don't have that and I says well I says um could he come in and hang out or volunteer or something you know well he you know, gave me like a oh, no, you know I don't know and then he says well who do you have I I didn't use his name at first and I says it's James Scott and man he, he said what he turned around and just, like, yelled it out to a couple guys there.
1: James Scott is around. Well, It was like, a, you got James Scott? Are you serious? And he going to bring him here?
0: Oh, that's great. Eric Judkins was one of the trainers there.
1: I mean, anybody would be excited to have James Scott.
0: He's a legend.
3: I saw these guys' reactions, and I was like, wow. It was probably like I walked in with Muhammad Ali, and I, I had no,
0: no idea who I so that that clip you just heard is right at the opening sequence of the story and the parole officer for james scott when he's gotten out of prison takes him to a boxing gym and the parole officer doesn't know who james scott is he doesn't know anything about him and he walks into this boxing gym he's like hey i've got this guy he seems to like boxing wondering if there's anything you guys can you know do for him
1: wow how did you how did you find the story
0: I'm shocked that there wasn't already something out there on it because it's a like incredible story. And I think initially what was proposed in a meeting uh, was just, hey, there was this guy in, in like the late seventies, he fought and he was in, in prison when the fights, you know, the fights happened in prison. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. And then as you start looking into it, you're like, wait a minute, this this has only happened one other time before. There was a fighter in I believe it was West Virginia He had two matches in the 1950s. I'm I'm blanking on his name right now. I think he only had three matches in his career, and two of them were in this prison. And then you start to realize, wait a minute, this is almost the only person that's ever done this. And, Mm. you know, not only did it, like, once or twice, James Scott had a total of nine fights that happened inside of the prison, and it's unbelievable. Actually, 11, if you count the ones that were not broadcast. And then I started talking to a lot of the TV producers who made the decisions, and you're like, How was he even allowed to do it? Start digging. You find out, you know, there's a warden, and the warden was trying to do a rehabilitation project. So it just kind of snowballed from a smaller idea, and then it just kind of expanded. And you start to, you know, there's this cast of characters that starts to come out, you know, the promoter, Murad Muhammad the, the warden Bob Hatrack and they all you know you start to like get their stories and start to understand you know kind of how this all came about
1: why, why is radio a good medium for these type of sports stories
0: one of the things that I always love about radio podcasts interviews is there's a certain type of intimacy that you get out of people that I think is really, really difficult to get in, you know, when you're filming somebody on video.
4: Right. I previously was on the ESPN films thirty for thirty films side. But people that sit down for interviews, they're like cognizant of all that. They're cognizant of the fact that they're in front of a camera And there's a crew, and it's maybe not even just the director or the producer asking them questions. There could be a director on set. There could be two or three PAs, four or five cameras, and they're getting them from every angle. There's lights on them. It's hot. And then you have to sit up straight. Can you go get water? Do you have to go to the bathroom? Are you nervous? Is it cold? You can't move. So you're really just kind of trying to get that over with, and for a podcast, there's just like less pressure. Well,
1: hey, listen, I, I know that you both have to run, but I was uh, just curious about just briefly how you each got here. I know that, Taylor, you're an alumni of uh, Bowie State, and you know, I know, Andrew, you started your career in uh, community radio Montreal,
0: a Canadian brother
1: here. Andrew, how did you get to this point, and is this sort of where you thought you would be at this point in your, of your, your life and your career?
0: I have a very roundabout way that I got where I am right now. I started in radio, and then I kind of had a career doing humanitarian aid work overseas in Sub-Saharan Africa. And then I came back to North America, to New York City, continued to do some work with the UN, and just didn't find it as fulfilling as when I was living overseas. So the thing I knew that I did before was radio, so I kind of went back to looking. It was kind of a humbling experience. You know, I'm in my like early 30s, and I'm doing an internship working for free at New York Public Radio and you know I just continued doing that for a while anytime somebody asked me I said yes any opportunity and then eventually that just ended up leading to a full time job and even you know was thinking I, I can't believe there's no narrative sports telling podcasts out there and I was you know actually at New York Public Radio proposing such a thing and the next thing I know this, this job was being advertised and I was like alright I'm out of here I'm gonna go do it over there <laughs>
1: Right, and, and Taylor, of course, you you made the, tr- the trip from uh, Bowie State to uh, Disney and ESPN. For for people who are you know the 24, 23, 24, 25, is there some type of formula uh, outside of just grinding?
4: that's kind of just what it is I first of all I am so proud that I went to an HBCU because we learned how to do whatever we needed to do with limited resources and that just made you a hustler so you had to you knew you had to go out there and do stuff because we were next to like American University we were next to all of these like Georgetown and everything and we saw those internships go up in DC and just get taken right down because they'd be Mm -hmm. promised already to those kids that were in these big top 100 communications journalism programs at the schools next door. So I was just like, you know, there has to be a way that I could break into this industry. And at the time, I was working for the federal government and I'd been there for four years, full-time, could have stayed there forever, made a career out of it. And I was just like, you know what? This isn't creative. I know I want to be a documentary producer. I know I want to produce content. And I was just excited about being able to Create something and say it was mine. So I found out about the Disney College program when I was in college, and I knew that there was a photography job, and I ended up getting the photography job. I was there for four months, and on my very last week, NFL Films posted an internship for their fall production internship. Went there, applied, got a call back. Within four weeks or so, I got an offer, and at NFL Films, I was lucky enough to meet some people who knew people at ESPN Films and, you know, the rest is history from there. And one of the things that has always stuck with me is, like, you never say no. And the second thing is just, like, there's other people working just as hard as you and you can't really compare yourself to those people. You just have to focus on you. And I am a firm believer that it's my world and I can be whoever I want to be in this world. Everyone has an opportunity to become who they want to be as well, but you have to take control of the world that you live in. And once you believe mm-hmm. that and you adopt that, I think the opportunities are limitless.
1: The gospel according to Taylor Barfield. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Amen. So, so, listen, Andrew, I know you've got to go, but no. since this is an HBCU show, we ask all all of our guests who did not attend HBCU, why? No, why? So, Andrew, why did you, why did you attend HBCU? <laughs> you, don't say because you, you lived in Canada.
0: Uh, you see that? Okay. So there are no HBCUs in Canada, and so it wasn't on my radar in that way. But I will say that I did want to go to an HBCU. I ran track in college, and when I was doing the application process, I was looking at a lot of schools. And actually, my number one that I wanted to go to was Howard University. I actually had a conversation and spoke to the the track coach at Howard about it. But I think the ultimate reason why I didn't end up going to HBCU is because I'm too slow. So the times I was running in track, he told me I could get a, I could get a partial scholarship, but not a full. And, uh, I think coming from Canada, it was just financially, I couldn't, I couldn't make it happen. Cause you know, coming where, from, where'd you end up going? so I ended up going to Concordia university in Montreal. Oh,
1: okay. Yeah. I got a good track program.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I ran, I ran, so I ran there and I enjoyed it and, I know I missed out, but um, it is we what it is. It's never always,
4: too late. It's always always never too to late. Homecoming. Yep. Oh. He can go to homecoming. You can get your, hey, listen, your uh, master's, your doctorate, because you know we have all those programs available. So it's never too late.
0: I'm going to go get my PhD at Howard. There That's you the go. That's next step. Uh, our guests have been
1: Andrew Mambo, who is a producer for ESPN's 30 for 30 podcast, and Taylor Barfield, who is a production assistant. Uh, hey, guys, thank you so much. Thank,
0: thank you, Bill. Thank
1: you.
4: This has been really fun.
1: If you're just now tuning in, you're listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows Podcast. I'm Bill Roden, and I'm here with my co-host, Mania Shabazz of Grambling and Isaiah Smalls from Morehouse. Uh, We're switching gears from the UFC uh, conversation and the 30 for 30 podcast to Basketball Wives. Yes, you heard it right. (laughs) You heard it from me. In in, in all seriousness, in light of uh, all the sexual assault and harassment allegations coming out in the news, we wanted to talk with women in high-profile settings about how they can avoid bad situations and protect themselves. Royce Reed is on the line, and uh, she's going to uh, share with us how she navigated these issues through her career uh, from being a cheerleader for the Miami Heat to starring on VH1's reality series, basketball-wise for four seasons. Uh, Royce currently owns a dance studio called Fantasique and manages a nonprofit called Love to Dance. Hey, Royce, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here.
5: Not a problem. Thanks for having
1: me. Yeah, no, it's our, it's, it's, it's our pleasure. Listen, there's a lot to get into. Now, you're calling us from the Florida Classic where Florida A&M is playing Bethune-Cookman. Um, well, I'm going to ask ahead. you, who are you rooting for and, and what brings you to the game?
5: Of course, I'm from that school on the highest of seven hills. <laughs> Damn you, let's
1: go. Yay, grudgingly. Uh, is, uh,
3: that, is that what they call it? I've never I've never heard it referred to as
1: as that uh, before. The
3: highest of seven hills, is that what you said?
5: Yes. Well, yeah, where does that come from? The highest of seven hills from the fact that we're on the highest of seven hills.
1: (laughs) 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 Another moment, black history, HBCU history.
2: (laughs) Hi, voice. Um, This is Mania. I was wondering, what made you attend FAMU, and what did you study?
5: For as long as I can remember, outside of being in entertainment, I always said that I wanted to be a pediatrician or a veterinary. But then I realized that I was just destined to be a performer Mm. in in entertainment. So that's what made me choose my major or change my major through theater education and humanities. And as far as why I went to FAMU, I think I was born into it. Mm. I mean, my parents went to FAMU, my aunts, my uncles, my brother, my God family, Mm. you know, Mm. and now I have uh, my God sister's son, or, you know, black people, my God nephew. Mm. Um, (laughs) Wow.
1: That's a lot of rattlers. Yeah, it
5: was, yeah, so it was almost like I didn't really have a choice, mm. but I never really wanted one. I did apply to other schools just because it feels good to say, oh, I got in, you know, and I had a choice. So I did apply to FSU. I applied to USF, and I got in, but I knew I wasn't going. <laughs> so,
2: How do you feel yeah. about your HBCU <laughs>
1: experience?
5: When I was there, I was so ready to go. So So you mean
1: you were ready to graduate or you were ready?
5: I was ready to graduate. I was ready to leave FAMU. Mm. Because one thing that I think people fail to really just admit
6: Mm. is
5: being at an HBCU, when you're there, you don't really realize what they're teaching you because you go through so much. Mm. And just dealing with us, Mm. (laughs) (laughs) it's a lot. And it was a culture shock for me. I always went to, you know, a predominantly white school. Mm -hmm. When I was a cheerleader in high school, I was the only black girl. Mm -hmm. So I was used to everybody liking me. I was, or, you know, face to face liking me. (laughs) Right. So when, you know, at HBCU, they will tell you to your face (laughs) how they feel about you. (laughs) And then with your teachers, you know, my black teachers that I had throughout school, they always cared. Mm -hmm. And. At them, they cared too, but it was almost like they cared to the point where, like, they were your other parents Mm. that you just didn't know you had. Mm. And it was like, why are you all in my business? Mm. You Mm. know what I mean. Mm. And I was getting phone calls. People, you know, they would call your parents and be like, "Um, I just want you know that Roy didn't go to class today."
6: Mm.
5: And (laughs) I just felt like I'm grown. Like, leave me alone. You know, we don't necessarily have everything that the bigger schools have mm. in terms of like even a financial aid department. Yes. You know, I went to FAM and I was on a full scholarship. However, I still wanted to take out some loans because I wanted a car. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So when you have to go to certain departments and the line is like, Two hours long and then you know you know you might go up to someone that's just not having a good day that day mm-hmm. it just becomes a lot mm-hmm.
2: this is mania from grambling i wanted to um talk about the show that you were on you know basketball wives i wanted to know how did you find the show and what made you decide to leave
5: the show actually found me um <laughs> When I was cheering, well, I don't want to say it like that, but <laughs> See, I cheered for the magic for two years before I did the Heat. People seem to, like, forget that. Mm. When I did the Heat, it was after I had met Shawnee. So when I came to Miami, we were always cool. And she couldn't stand anybody else on the squad, but mm. she liked me because I was always respectful. And they knew that I wouldn't try and be with anybody's husband. Mm. The white and I had dated prior to that. And she knew that as well. So we had gotten pretty tight. And a man named Tom Huffman, he had the show idea. And he reached out to Shawnee about it. And she was like, oh, it sounds like a great idea. I think I know some girls or some Mm -hmm. young ladies. And she reached out to me. And this was after, you know, I danced or whatever and I had braids on. And she was like, is this something that you would be interested in? And I said, sure. So that's where... It all started, and from there, you know, the show got picked up, and it was actually picked up by seven different stations, and they decided to go with VH1. Right. <laughs> I just, I mean? yeah,
2: I just um, always thinking about when, um, you know, like how real reality shows actually are, because me watching, you know, as a just a bystander and an audience member, I just wondered, you know, how real it is. So
5: it was about eighty to eighty-five percent real for me. And I'll say, like, the other, you know, 15%, 20% that wasn't were the situations wherein, you know, they're like, Royce, we need you to call this person up and say that you want to talk about what just happened. Mm. I'm that type of person. I really don't care. If I'm, like, off you, I'm off you. So I'm not going to just pick up the phone and be like, Evelyn, we need to talk. And you just try to throw a glass at my head.
2: I definitely noticed you definitely distanced yourself um, as the seasons went on from all the girls. And I remember you would just be hanging out with a certain, mm -hmm, so I can definitely see that.
5: Yeah. I decided to leave because I felt like they were going down the route of just being ratchet. I didn't feel like they were really trying to show who we were and our businesses. You know, they just started steering clear of that and just about drama Mm. and with everything that I was trying to do and I'm being a, you know, I'm a mother and then I have, you know, Fanta chic, I'm sitting here preaching to these girls about, you know, self-awareness and respect and confidence. And then here I am on this show being a hypocrite.
6: Mm. So I was
5: just always felt like I was contradicting myself and I'm like, am I going to continue doing a show for a check or am I going to leave for respect? So mm. I decided to leave. Mm. And I think it's definitely one of the best decisions that I made, you know, Tammy has definitely reached out to me and asked if I would, you know, come and do another season or at least, like, make a cameo. And i always say, well, are they going to show Fanta sheet mm. And they dance, like, at a program or something? You know, I'm always throwing that in there because mm. that's my life.
1: Mm. And a
5: lot of these girls, once the show is over, they don't have anything.
1: Mm. Wow. How did that show affect your relationship with Dwight?
5: Dwight and I actually were going to do the show together. Hmm. And right before we started filming, he decided to back out. And that's when that whole thing where people are talking about this whole gag order and all this stuff, that's not what it is. I just agreed not to talk about him. And, you know, I still wanted Braylon to be on the show, but he was against it. That kind of bothered me because I didn't want people to see me in a different aspect Mm -hmm. and me being a mom. But, you know, he didn't go for it. So it is what it is. But... Dwight and I are just very up and down, and right now we are very down. I don't like for my son to be hurt. I don't like broken promises, and I don't like back and forth. If you're going to be there, be there. If you're not, then just disappear, you know? Mm. And I try not to speak negatively about him, but I refuse to lie to Braylon as well. Mm. So, uh,
3: kind of switching gears a little bit, you mentioned that uh, you didn't like the direction that the show was going in, and that's, you know, why you decided to let, leave. Do you think that's a problem in the media in terms of how they portray black women?
5: And the stigma that black women have already is that we're difficult, we're loud and angry and ignorant. And when you're watching a show like that, what would make someone feel different? You know, initially the way that we were we were told the show was going to be, was supposed to be uplifting and showing like, you know, what we're doing and that we're not just, in someone's shadow. And that's why I fell in love with it. After the fourth season, I was over it because I saw that it was a lie. And now when I hear about it, because I don't watch it anymore, when I hear about somebody running after someone or punching someone in the face, and some of it happening in another country, it's embarrassing. When Mm -hmm. I look at shows like Love and Hip Hop, you know, for some people, it's just entertainment. I get it. I'm not gonna lie and say I never watch them because I do. But it doesn't make us look
2: good. And you can but, just see um, this pattern of, in all reality shows involved, like Love and Hip-Hop, Wags, of just, it's arguing and fighting. And, you know, these people are, they're mothers. So when they grow up nice. and they have to watch that, you know, I and I also wanted to ask, you know, why isn't anyone married on the show? And it's called Basketball Wives. I just always wondered that because I know Jennifer, no. she got divorced. And- <laughs> Great question. <laughs>
5: That's the same thing. They wanted to play off of the Real Housewives franchise,
2: so that's
5: why they went with that. So it's false advertisement.
2: Yes, because I remember (laughs) there was a point on the show where no one was married, because, you know, Shawnee's divorced, and Jennifer got divorced, and Evelyn wasn't with Ocho Cinco, so, you know. Mm
5: -hmm. Mm. And Ocho Cinco was football. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
2: I wanted to know: Were you ever? Did people ever do like inappropriate flirting with you, or how did you handle that? Especially being in that world,
5: all the time. I mean, it could be players, it could be coaches, it could be the friends of players. You deal with it all the time. But I have a very slick mouth. I mean, you kind of saw it on the show. I don't really yeah. bite my tongue. So um, <laughs> I'm like either you love me or you don't type person. So You know, I had a very high-profile player try to talk for me for over a year. And I, to this day, have the messages saved Mm. just in case I need them ever, you know. And, you know, he was was married, Mm. kids, Mm. everything. But I'm like, what you won't do is ever say that I pursued you or that I did something because I did not. And when I never fell for his antics, He called me the B word. He said, who am I to turn him down? Do I know who he is? You know, stuff like that. And I'll never be anything. Like, I got all of that. And I was like, okay. Mm. (laughs) Mm. You know, because it's kind of like that whole high school thing where a dude's trying to talk to you and you don't talk to them. So they say, you ain't all that anyway. Mm, It's kind of like that.
3: In terms of like how you mentor uh, these girls at Fashion Week, what type of advice do you give them on how to deal with, especially those that are going to college, what type of advice do you give them in terms of how to navigate uh, difficult situations or deal with sexual harassment or sexism?
5: Well, the first thing that they learn when they audition and they become a part of the company is they learn a pledge that I wrote for them. And it talks about self-confidence. It talks about their body being a temple, and they will protect it. You know, our confidence is tough. Our self-esteem is high. No one can make us feel inferior without our permission. That's just some lines from their pledge that they all have to know or they don't dance. They know that they can call us, their instructors, any time of night. I get phone calls at 3 o'clock in the morning sometimes with, you know, a girl that might be dealing with a boyfriend that's being, uh, that's pressuring her to have sex. And, he's, you know, she'll say, well, he said that I must not care about him. If... And I was like, girl, that is the oldest line in the book. I'm like, he just wants to go and say that he did it. I'm like, don't fall for that. And sometimes they do, you know. Dealing with females, we've had over 300 come through our company within the five and a half years we've been open. So I can't say that we haven't lost some to pregnancy or some to just the wrong way of life. But the majority, I will say like over 95 percent have gone off to school are on, they're on their path to do that. They're dancing in the real world and not on a pole. They're you know, very driven and they have to keep a C plus grade average in order to stay in our company anyway.
2: Do you think more sexual assault and rape um, is more prevalent in the entertainment industry or, you know, are you surprised by all the allegations that are coming out now? And what are your thoughts? I don't
5: think that is more prevalent now. I just think that social media can either be your best friend or your worst enemy. You know, back in the day, we didn't have Instagram or, you know, Facebook and all that stuff. I mean, when I was in school, we had Black Planet, you know what I'm saying? And then it was MySpace.
6: Mm. But
5: you didn't have all these outlets like TMZ and Radar Online and all that, the media takeout, the shade room. You know, you didn't have all these outlets where you can just, you know, privately message someone and get this story out or say something. You didn't have these camera phones Mm. or, you know, these other devices where you can actually record something and take pictures for proof. Mm. So. I think it was so hard 20 plus years ago because you're going up against these high profile people and it can be very intimidating. You know, I mean, even for me, just having a child Mm. and going through the drama with, you know, the white, Mm. like people fall in love with images, which is a snapshot of who a person really is. So when someone else is trying to, you know, not necessarily assassinate that character or come at that person they have so many fans that the person who is actually the victim ends up being victimized again. Mm. Mm. So they end up being quiet. So my, my advice, and I tell my girls this too, keep everything documented. Write it down. If you ended up reporting it, who did you report it to? Make sure you have that person's badge number if it was a cop. Mm. Write a diary. Mm. You know what I mean? And then also on the flip side, I say this to them, too. If at that moment you were OK with it, don't then come back a few months or a year later and regret it and then try and say something. You know, that's regret. Mm. But that's not
1: harassment. Well, hey, Royce, boy, this has really been a, a great conversation. I know you've got to run, but thank you. So much uh, for coming on the show. Our guest has been uh, Royce Reed. She's the uh, former cheerleader for the Miami Heat, a uh, uh, former star of VH1's reality series, Basketball Wives, and uh, she currently owns a dance studio called Fanta Chic*, and she manages a nonprofit called Love to Dance. Royce, thank you. This has really been fantastic, but thank you so much.
5: Fam you all day.
1: Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay, there we go. Okay, <laughs> thanks so much, Royce. And before we close out, we'll leave you with some thoughts to consider. Those
3: who tuned in to last week's matchup between the Sixers and Lakers witnessed history courtesy of Joel Embiid. According to ESPN, Embiid became the first player to ever put up over 45 points, 15 rebounds, 7 assists, and 7 blocks since the NBA started recording rejection in 1973 74. His monster performance overshadowed that of his. Aussie teammate, Ben Simmons, who fell just one rebound short of the triple-double. As I sat at home watching the game, I almost shed a tear. It had been four years since I first saw Together We Rebuild plastered across the in board. I remembered my dismay at the time. I remembered questioning the front office multiple times. I even remembered... Instagram posts from 2014 in which I begged the basketball gods to let either Riggins or Jabari slip to the third pick. And please don't even get me started on the injuries. While I could have done without the 45 point blowouts, sub 20 win seasons, and 28 game losing streaks, it was not in vain. For the first time in a while, I'm happy to be a Sixers fan. And I hope the city of Philadelphia is happy too.
1: Thanks for listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows Podcast. This show is produced by Aaron Mathewson. Tony Chow and Martin O'Neill are in the control room. Special thanks to David Cummings. Get all of the HBCU 468 podcasts as well as all day. What are those? And morning roast by subscribing to The Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app join us next week for another HBCU podcast and don't forget to make The Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports and entertainment. Have a great week everybody.